All right. If you have a Bible with you, though, I want you to open up to uh, Romans chapter 16. We only have this sermon today and the next week, and we are done with Romans. I've spent about three years there, and uh, this is a short passage. And when I'm done reading, you're going to be like, hmm, what are you going to get out of this? Here's what it says. It's a sermon entitled, Greetings from Corinth. So it's Romans 16, 21 to 23, and this is what it says. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, and so does Lucius and Jason and Sassipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me, and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. And Quartus, the brother. You know, the Industrial Revolution transformed the world, causing a great, vast increase in human productivity and material wealth. But alongside and in conjunction with that came the communication revolution, which has dramatically increased the ability of humans to disseminate information to ever more people across greater and greater distances. I mean, think about it. Back in Paul's day, if you wanted to communicate with somebody who was in another city, what did you have to do? Well, you had to go and visit them. Either that or send maybe a servant with a letter uh, addressed to them. But even at that time, they did have a postal service. Did you know that? As the Roman Empire was getting ever larger, there was a greater need for a reliable flow of information, both from the uh, uh, capital out to the provinces and back again. And so the Romans set up uh, what they called their cursus publicus, cursus publicus, which is uh, Latin for the public way. Now, created by the emperor uh, Caesar Augustus, it was for, primarily for tax collecting purposes, but the Romans, what they did was they set up forts and stations along their roads. And these uh, forts functioned as relay points because what they would do is they would uh, have fresh horses and wagons and they would be staffed by cartwrights and, uh, and also blacksmiths to keep them going. And so the mail would come in on the wagons with the soldiers and the couriers and it would be switched out with another wagon and fresh team of horses. And this system actually lasted in Rome for 500 years. It was slow but quite reliable. Now Pony Express was based on the same idea. They delivered mail faster than the stagecoaches because a rider, a single rider, could cover between 75 and 100 miles in one day, switching out horses every 10 miles or so. Now, it was important that they traveled light, but even so, they were expected to carry in their saddlebag a Bible issued by the company and also a pistol. Alexander Majors, the man who founded the Pony Express, also made the, um, the riders swear an oath. And here's what it said. Before the great living God that during my engagement and while I'm an employee of Russell's, Majors, and Waddle, I will under no circumstances use profound, uh, profane language and I will drink no intoxicating liquors. I will not quarrel or fight with any of the employees of the firm and in every respect I will conduct myself honestly, be faithful to my duties, and so direct my acts as to win the confidence of my employees. So help me God. Now the Pony Express was a great idea, but it only lasted for 18 months. It went out of business, and the reason was the telegraph made it obsolete. You could send messages through telegraph across the country in just minutes. And of course, that system was greatly enhanced by Samuel Morse and his dot-dash Morse code. More impressive than the telegraph, though, was the telephone. Alexander Graham Bell not only invented the telephone in 1877, but he also gave birth to his own mother, Ma Bell, the company that held a monopoly over the telephone industry until it was finally broken up in the 1980s. Before that, there was no Verizon or Sprint or Nokia. Uh, in the olden days, phone messages all had to travel, travel over copper wire, wires. Now they come through fiber optics. Well, radio broadcast started in 1922. 
Sound movies came in 1927. Uh, first uh, debuted uh, in 1940, television did. Color came in 1960. Satellite communication in 1962. And in 1975, the first personal computers arrived. In 1983, Al Gore invented the internet. <laughs> That's what he says. In 1999, high-speed internet became a reality. Today, we communicate through Twitter and Facebook. And now with podcasts and YouTube, everyone can communicate with hundreds, thousands, even millions of people across the globe. Now, I, for one, am happy and thankful for the communications revolution. Yes, there's a lot of content out there that we would be better off not seeing. Sure, it allows people to make snarky comments and to be nasty towards others in a way they would never do in person. But it enables us also to get the gospel out to places we could never bring it before. I mean, we're a small church in rural Wisconsin, and yet we have five, or 35,000 sermons that have been downloaded from our website by countries, uh, 80 countries across the world. But I have to say, I am thankful that the Bible was written before the communication revolution took place, and not in our own day. Otherwise, instead of having the epistle to the Ephesians, we would have the email to the Ephesians. Instead of uh, firing off a letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul may have engaged in a Twitter war with them. And instead of setting before the Christians in Rome a well-written-out, thought-out defense of the gospel and its implications for our lives, uh, Paul might have used uh, memes and funny emojis. But here, Paul did write a letter, a well-crafted letter, using the customary form of that day. Now, unlike letters in our day where you don't identify yourself into the very last page, they always put it at the beginning. And that's why we saw in the beginning of Romans where Paul said, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then he explains what that gospel is, the content that he's going to expound on. Concerning his son, who was born, descendant of David, according to the flesh, was declared the son of God by, uh, with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He also identifies who his target audience is. He said, To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verses 16 to 17, he gives the theme when he says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith to faith, just as it's written, the just shall live by faith. Now everything that follows in the book of Romans that we've looked at these last three years is uh, expanding on that idea of God's righteousness revealed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But when you get to the very end, even at the end, Paul still stay, uh, stays with the form that was used by Greeks and Romans. Because after giving greetings to the people that he was writing to, he also get, joins others who are in Corinth in them giving greetings. Now, most commentators, when I was studying for this, it didn't take a whole lot of time. Because almost all the commentators took no more than a paragraph to explain these people here. But I am absolutely committed to teaching the Bible verse by verse, every verse. And so I thought to myself, can we teach this? How much can we get out of this? It's just a list of names. But it's the Word of God, and I think there's truth even here. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this, and we're going to consider what God has to say to us through these few names that are listed here. So why don't we pray and get some help? Our Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. Help us to see. Um, the more I got into this, the more I realized there's truth everywhere in your Word, and it can be mined if we just dig. And here we dug and we found truth. So bless us now, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's three things in the sermon uh, that we want to do. First of all, we want to think about Paul's ministry in Corinth. Paul's ministry in Corinth. Next, we want to consider Paul's work, co-workers in that ministry. And then finally, we want to draw some lessons for ourselves 
about ministry. So Paul's ministry in Corinth. Now Paul first went to the city of Corinth during his second missionary journey. You might recall that he was at Athens right before this. And there he got into a discussion with the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers who had this puzzled look on their face after he started speaking. And they asked this question. said, what does this idle babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be proclaiming some strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. I have to tell you, that always rings true with me because I remember preaching through parts of the Bible in churches and people looking at me like I was giving them some strange thing that they had never heard before. And I'm afraid that that's actually what the problem was. Well, isn't it interesting, though, that some of the most brilliant and well-educated people are the most clueless when it comes to spiritual matters, like these philosophers? The British writer Malcolm Muggeridge says that modern man has educated himself into imbecility. My three-year-old granddaughter knows the difference between boys and girls. There's a highly educated woman who was just confirmed to the Supreme Court when asked if she could provide a definition for woman, said no, because she's not a biologist. Some of Paul's listeners who heard the message mocked. Others said, we'd like to hear you again concerning this. A few, precious few, believed. I don't know if Paul left there shook up or discouraged by the response of the philosophers. He might have been, for reflecting on his arrival in Corinth, which was the next city he went to, he reminded the believers there of this. He said, when I came to you, brethren, he's talking to the Corinthians, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and power. In the final analysis, I could preach my heart out the most eloquent and the most carefully crafted sermon with the most emotion ever. But if God doesn't open the heart, eh, people shrug their shoulders. Well, I don't know if Paul was discouraged when he was in Athens, but he certainly was discouraged and frustrated by the reception he got at Corinth when he first got there. Turn over to Acts chapter 18. I want to look at his arrival there. Acts chapter 18, starting with verse 1. Acts is the book right before this one. Look what it says. After these things, he, meaning Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and was working, uh, and they were working, for, the trade, uh, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogues every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. Now, did the Jews respond by saying, our Messiah has finally come in the person of Jesus of Nazareth? He died for our sins. He's risen from the dead for, so we can have forgiveness of sins and be granted the promise of eternal life. Wonderful. Thank you for coming and telling us the good news. No. They rejected it. And they mocked the idea of a crucified Messiah. We're told in verse 6, but when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garment and said to them, your blood be on your own hands. I am clean. Paul was fed up with their stubbornness and unbelief. You want to die and go to hell? Go. But you have only yourself to blame. Let me ask you a question. You get frustrated when you're trying to witness to your family members and friends? We want you to come to church. Oh, I, I got some. Oh, I just don't feel good. 
Oh, I, you know, you got a husband. Well, we're going to church on Sunday. Oh, I was just going to take you out to that restaurant that I always wanted to take you to. Oh, okay. Or, yeah, I'd like to do a Bible study. Oh, yeah. But then when the time comes, mm, no, I got something else going on. Do you remember when Jesus gave that parable of the seed that was scattered and some landed on, among the thorns? And it grew up, but it said it choked it off. The thorns did. And Jesus said, that's the person who hears the word. It looks like it takes root. He said, over time, the thorns choke it out. He said, that's the person who, because of the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things, the plant is destroyed. Well, you don't want to hear the truth in the, God, uh, in the synagogue? Fine, Paul says. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. But he didn't have to go very far. Look what it says in verse 7. They left and went to the house of a man named uh, uh, Titius uh, Justice, a worshiper of God, who had a house right next to the synagogue. And by the way, his time in the synagogue was not all for naught, for we read in verse 8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with his whole household, with his household. And many of the Corinthians, presumably Gentiles here, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord, it said, came to Paul in a vision at night. He said, don't be afraid any longer, but keep speaking. Do not be silent, for, I ha- for no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Now, Las Vegas, my son's there right now with COVID. <laughs> Las Vegas is known as Sin City. Well, Corinth was the Sin City of the Roman Empire. It was a growing area with a lot of new wealth. Everything in that culture was about self-promotion and self-indulgence. I mean, hardly a place where you would think to plant a church. But then again, Jesus said, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Just because the place God has put you in is hard, and the people are resistant and hostile, doesn't mean that you cannot have a fruitful ministry there. Persist in praying. Keep on waiting. While you witness, God may call a number of people to faith through your faithful work. Sure, it can be discouraging, but Paul acknowledges that when he writes in Galatians 6, 9 to 10. He says, let us not lose heart in doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are the household of faith. Years ago, when I was just starting out as a pastor, I heard of some pastor who was selling his library. And so, you know, selling a library, that's good. So I went there to look at his books and whatnot. And he told me he was retiring because he had macular degeneration in his eyes. And because of it, he was not able to read anymore. So he said the books really are not of much value to him. Well, as an old man retiring and me a young man starting out, I said, can you give me your best advice as a pastor just starting out? He said, don't get this surge and don't take it personally. I drove away thinking, He's been in ministry for 40 years, and the best advice he gets is don't get discouraged and don't take it personally. Well, 30 30 years later in my ministry, I'm thinking that was about the best advice he could have given. And it says of Paul that he settled there for a year and six months teaching the word of God among the people. Well, that's where Paul was, spending his time investing. That brings us to our second point, though. Paul's co-workers in the ministry. Now, the Lone Ranger, that's a fictional character that was first introduced to radio audiences back in 1933. By 1939, 20 million Americans were listening regularly to the program. Do you know why he's called the Lone Ranger, though? 
The story goes that there were six rangers, Texas rangers, that were sent out to track down the outlaw Butch Cavendish. But the rangers were betrayed by their civilian guide who secretly was working for Cavendish. He leads the rangers into an ambush, and there they think all six of them are killed, but one lone ranger was not all the way dead. He was only mostly dead. A little while later, an Indian named Tontok arrives on the grisly scene. He sees the lone ranger and remembers him from his childhood as the kid who saved him. He nurses the lone ranger back to health, and then the two of them work together to hunt down Butch Cavendish to bring him to justice. Now, he may have been called the lone ranger, but think about it. He still wasn't working alone. He had Tonto. Maybe you've heard people say, well, you cannot be a lone ranger Christian. Some people think they can. They can go through the Christian life without a church, without being connected to other believers. But Christianity is a team sport. It's more akin to football than a tennis match. And we need to work together and support each other if we're going to accomplish the mission that Christ has given us. Remember when Jesus sent out his disciples? He always sent them out two by two. Why? So that they could encourage one another along the way. Ravi Zacharias, well-known international Christian apologist, traveled across the world preaching the gospel. At his memorial service, which lasted three hours, one person after another got up to recall their memories of him and to praise him for his incredible faithfulness and integrity. Vice President Mike Pence spoke there as well. A few months later, a scandal broke. Robbie had been living a double life and had had numerous affairs over the years. Robbie Zacharias was highly respected by the church, but strangely enough, he was seldom in a church. He was going so often that he had almost no connection to his own local church. Well, Paul was not a Lone Ranger Christian. Wherever he traveled, wherever he went, he had ministry partners working with him. Now, early in this chapter, he greeted the Christians in Rome who knew that he had known. But here, starting in verse 21, he sends greetings from some of his co-workers who were with him in Corinth. And so the first one he mentions is, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. Now, by the way, every great leader needs a right-hand man. The Lone Ranger needs Tonto. Batman needs Robin. The Green Hornet needs Cato. Some of you don't even know what that is. We first hear about Timothy in Acts chapter 16, where we read this. Paul came to Derbe and Lystra, those are two cities, and the disciples was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he, spoke well, he was spoken well of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted to, this man to go with him, and so he took and circumcised him because the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, Timothy was already a believer before Paul met him. Probably he came to faith as a child as a result of the instruction and the faithful prayers of his mother and his grandmother. In the last letter that Paul wrote shortly before his death, he said this to Timothy. He said, I thank God who I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. And I constantly remember you, Timothy, in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I might be filled with joy. For I'm mindful of the sincere faith that dwells in you, which was first in your grandmother Lois, and in your mother Eunice, and I'm sure it's in you as well. Evidently, Timothy's father was not a believer. Ladies, you don't have to wait for your husbands to become Christians before you can pass on your faith to your kids. Sure, it makes it harder if one parent is an unbeliever, but even if that's the case, then double your efforts. Don't have them. And by the way, if you're a second or third generation believer, you had godly parents and grandparents, you ought to be doubly thankful. John MacArthur, 
Uh, pastor who stood so firmly in this last year against the government and the attempt to shut down his church. He's been in his church for 53 years. His father, Jack MacArthur, was a pastor and a radio preacher for years. His grandfather, Henry, or Harry MacArthur, was an Anglican minister in Canada. Now, Paul reminds Timothy of the rich biblical instruction he had received growing up. He said this in 1 Timothy 3, 13 to 16. He said, evil men and imposters will go from bad, by imposters, he means in the church, will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things that you have learned and be convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through Jesus Christ. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness so that every man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. And by the way, personality-wise, Paul, he was a dynamo. I mean, he was a firebrand. He was a nonstop, ever-ready bunny. I mean, he was spiritually on fire all the time. On the other hand, Timothy was a quieter man, a little bit on the timid side. That's why Paul wrote things like this to him. I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Evidently, he had nervous problems. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.23, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. I mean, God can use all kinds of temperaments. Martin Luther was bold and bombastic. I mean, he always drove with a throttle wide open. On the other hand, Philip Melanchthon, his right-hand man, was a rhenic and peace-loving. Luther tended to start the fires, and Melanchthon made sure that they didn't burn more than they needed to. You know, the real issue is your own character, whether you're faithful or not. I mean, you need to be a person that can be counted on. And Timothy had that quality. Paul himself said this, writing to the Christians in the city of Philippi, he mentions Timothy, says this, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you so that you also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who is, will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things will go with me. Well, let me ask you a question. If you're a Christian, would people, could people say of you that you have a genuine concern for the spiritual welfare of others and that you put the interest of Christ over your own interest? I mean, if you're a believer, your life is going to be over soon. And you're going to stand before God, before Christ, on Judgment Day. I mean, don't you want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful in a few things. I'll put you in charge of many. Enter into the joy of your master. I mean, Timothy, we know a fair amount about, but the next three names, we don't know much at all. It says, and so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Now, some commentators think that Lucius is uh, Dr. Luke, who wrote the gospel bearing his name. By the way, did you know that he's the only Gentile writer of a New Testament book? All the others were Jews. But it's more likely that this is the man who's mentioned in Acts chapter 13, 1-2, where we read this. Now there was at Antioch, in the church there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who's called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene and Manan, 
who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. When they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them to. Have you ever heard of Pete Best? I'll bet you've heard of the rock band that he used to play in. It's called the Beatles. Pete Best was their a drummer, but the problem was he couldn't carry a beat, and that's not good if you're in a band called the Beatles. And so uh, Brian Epstein, their manager, fired him after John Lennon complained about him. He was replaced by another guy named Ringo Starr. A year later, the Beatles made it to the big time. Well, the Holy Spirit had chosen Paul and Barnabas for their missionary journey, but that doesn't mean that Lucius couldn't keep a beat. It just means they got out of their plans for him. And you know, I have to say, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing when you finally say, you know what, whatever God's will is for my life, that's what I'm going to accept. In this marriage or not having marriage, in this job, wherever he's placed me, I'll serve him there and I'll do it with joy. Mentions a man named Jason. He shows up in Acts 17. Here's what it says. Now, when they had traveled from Amphilius to uh, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and according to Paul's custom, he went in, and for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scripture, explaining and giving evidence that Christ, the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying that this Jesus that I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women. But the Jews became jealous, and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, attacking the house of Jason. And they were seeking to bring out the people. When they did not find them, meaning Paul and his cohorts, it says they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city officials, shouting, these men are upset the world and they've come here also. And Jason had welcomed them and they are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. None of that was true, by the way. Saying that there's another king, Jesus. They stir up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason, they released him. So you had some Jews who engaged in a mostly peaceful protest. They smashed down the doors of Jason's house looking for Paul. When they didn't find him, they drag him out before the city magistrates who whip up the crowds. And he's only released after he posts bond to promise that this isn't going to happen again. Of course, notice he's not the one who caused it, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's fair or not. I've known of a lot of people where they're out witnessing it, you know, at a Muslim festival or something like that, and the Muslims start pelting them and throwing things. So who do they arrest? Not the Muslims. They arrest the Christians. How about this guy, Sosipater? This is probably the same guy that's mentioned in Acts 20, where we read this. And he, uh, he Paul, accompanied uh, Sopater, it's just a different version of it, of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus uh, and Secondus, and the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychius, and Trophimus of Asia. So this, this guy had seen action with Paul as well. And when he refers to him as my kinsman, what he means is he was a fellow Jew. Or how about this one? I, Tertius, verse 22, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. By the way, it's a trivia question. Who wrote the Declaration of Independence? Thomas Jefferson wrote the first draft, but that beautifully scripted one that's stored in the National Archive Museum was written by a man named Timothy Matlack, who wrote the Constitution. That was James Madison. But who actually penned it? That was also James Madison. When I worked at the dairy, the ladies in the store told me they had granted an award to me. I had the award, or the 
distinction of having the worst handwriting of anyone in the company. I edged out my boss, Eric, for having the most illegible scribbling. Now, I have to say there's probably some truth in what they said, because even for myself, when I'm making notes for my sermon later on, when I'm looking at them half the time, I can't read what they said. Well, I'm guessing that uh, Tertius had nice handwriting, and I'm sure that he was accurate in uh, transcribing Paul's words. And I have to say here that I appreciate Rob for the work he does in recording and at times editing the video and the audio for the sermons. Last week, I got a reference wrong in Isaiah. I said it was Isaiah chapter 12. My brother corrected me. He said it's Isaiah 14. I didn't want that in there, so I asked Rob if he could correct that. Yeah, take out just one word, right? That's not easy, but he did. I looked at it later on, and I said, turn to Isaiah, and then it went on. Well, there you go. Notice he talks on this other one, too, though. He says, Gaius, host to me, and to the whole church greets you. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we find that this Gaius was baptized by Paul. Evidently, he was one of the people converted under his ministry. And he must have done fairly well, been fairly well off, because it says that he not only hosted Paul, but it says the whole church met at his house. Uh, they didn't have buildings to meet in in the early years. Matter of fact, in one part in the book of Acts, it says when they got kicked out of the synagogue, they started meeting in a school, the school of Tyrannus. Huh. Well, Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. This guy was a government official. Christians can serve God in the government. It's interesting because it seems that he got promoted to a higher position because not that many years ago they found a plaque in the ruins in Corinth that mentions a man named Erastus who had a higher position and said that he had paid for the street out in front of him at his own expense. It's most likely that it's the same man. And then the last one that's mentioned is a guy named Quartus. Quartus. Donald Gray Barnhouse tells about when uh, he was a former pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church. He was there before James Montgomery Boyce. Uh, he tells of a visit he had in China. And when he was there, he was staying at the house of a very wealthy man who had a number of servants. And one of the Chinese servants spoke English quite clearly, and it was obvious that he was in charge of the other servants. So Barnhouse asked about this man, and he said, ah, he's, our, he's the number one, he's the best number one boy in China. Number one boy? Yeah, what they do is they, they give numbers to the servants. And the number one is the top servant. Well, Charlie Chan used to talk about his number one son, right? Well, in Rome, they gave names like that to slaves as well. Primus would be the number one slave. Secondus, like that man that we read about just a minute ago, your number two slave. Tertius is your number three slave. And Quartus is your number four. And here in Romans, we have a Tertius and a Quartus. Well, that's the little bit von them. What lessons should we draw from them? Where do you get from this? Well, most of the chapter, 16, is just really composed of a list, two lists of names of people in Rome. Paul wanted to greet those in Rome in verses 1 to 16. And then he sends greetings from his co-workers in Corinth in these verses. Are there really lessons that can be drawn, truths, that we take out of this list of names that we know so little about? I think there are. James Montgomery Boyce, the guy I just mentioned, uh, he draws out four lessons. I think they're worth repeating. Here's the first one. The lesson of the reality of Christian fellowship. The reality of Christian fellowship. Back in 1971, the band called The New Seekers came out with a song that had these words. I'd like to build the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. 
I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'd like to hold it in my arms and keep it company. I'd like to see the world for once all standing hand in hand and hear them echo through the hills for peace throughout the land. That's the song I hear. Sing it along. Let the world sing today over and over. Now the lyrics are sappy, but that sentimental longing is right. You know, Coca-Cola, by the way, took that and changed the words a little bit and made it into an international advertising campaign. But you know, the reality of unity and fellowship is only realized within the church of Jesus Christ. It's here where we've all become sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you, Paul says, were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for they're all, we're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's descendants, according to the promise. There's a lot of people working very hard, both in our culture and in our churches, to divide people based on the amount of melanin they have in their skin. That's wickedness. In the book of Proverbs, it says there's seven things the Lord hates, and the last one is those who sow discord among the brethren. In the churches in Rome and Corinth, you had rich people and poor people, slave and free. Religious backgrounds didn't matter. Social status didn't matter. It's not Coca-Cola that brings us together. It's faith in Christ. Here's the second thing. Each person has a special calling to serve God. Has God called you to be a pastor, Bible study leader, Sunday school teacher? Then do so faithfully. Maybe you just hold a secular job. That's where God intends for you to serve him, to be a witness there, to be a better worker than others. Are you a wife? Then be a good wife. Are you a mother? Then be a good mother. Are you a grandparent? Take the opportunity to teach your grandchildren, even if you weren't taught by your parents. Here's the third thing, though. And the importance of people in the world, the importance of people in the, that the world thinks are insignificant. I mean, come on. If you're named Tertius, you're not even a top slave. But I tell you what, what that man wrote that day for Paul was more important than the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. And whether we remember or not that it was Tertius who actually penned it, Jesus remembers, and he plans on rewarding on that day. Here's the last thing, though, the importance of world missions. I mean, all these people in this chapter 16 were doing their part to get the soul-saving message of Jesus Christ out to a perishing world. And by the way, I think almost in every sermon I do, I at some point give the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the good news? Well, the good news starts with the bad news that we are all sinners who have fallen short of God's standards. And there's no way we can make up for the sins that we've already committed. But what God did was he sent a son who became a man and lived a perfect life as a Jew under the law in Israel, never sassed his parents, never had a dirty thought, never a word that was harsh that wasn't deserved, never did anything wrong. And then, after living that perfect life, he offered it up on a cross as a sacrifice for the sins of those who trust him. So that when a person trusts in Jesus instead of their own goodness, which they don't have anyways, when they turn to Jesus, turn to God through Jesus, through the cross, and believe that Jesus died for their sins, God removes their sins and their guilt 
and he credits Jesus' righteousness, his perfect law-keeping record, to the person's account so that God can now look at you as if you had lived the life that Jesus lived. So Jesus gets our sin and guilt, and we get his righteousness and goodness. And if you would believe what I just told you just now, you would leave this room justified, declared righteous in the sight of God with the promise of eternal life. That is really good news. Do you understand why it is there's no part, when you're playing a part in that and getting that message out, there's no part that's small? Can you bring cookies on Tuesday night for vacation Bible school? That's almost nothing to you. But it means everything to Jesus. Because these are the means that he's going to use to call in all of his people. And when it's all said and done, they'll all be there, the ones that God has chosen. Give yourself to serving the Lord. You'll never get your name mentioned in the Bible, but it's still written in heaven. And Jesus plans on rewarding those who serve him. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we need your grace and mercy. These are just ordinary people, but uh, they did important work, each in their own way. And that's the way we want to be. None of us are going to be famous, but that doesn't matter. We wouldn't want to be famous. It causes too many troubles. But we can serve you at our job. We can serve you by getting our kids to church. We can serve you, Lord, by teaching them. We can serve you by witnessing to people. We can serve you by sweeping up the floor when we're done in the commons area. There's a thousand ways we can serve you, Lord. And if we serve you out of love, then we will find joy now and find great reward later. So, Father, bless your people. Help us. And for any who don't know you today, Lord, work in their hearts so that they don't lay their head on their pillow tonight without being made right with you. So bless them. Bless us. We ask in Jesus' name.